One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, the newish editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by the award-winning journalist and former Guardian Health editor Sarah Bosley to discuss a pressing question. Why won't Big Pharma share the patents for the coronavirus vaccines? In her essay on the most recent issue of Prospect, Sarah argues that Big Pharma needs to put people's health above its profits margins, as only 3% of people in low-income countries had been vaccinated. So Sarah, let's kick off with some of the basics. Big Pharma's a phrase that trips off the tongue. What, what do we mean by it? Really, we're talking about the major global pharmaceutical companies when we say this. Um, they tend to be based in the wealthiest countries. If we're talking about the vaccines, AstraZeneca has made one with um, the Oxford University in the UK. We're talking about Pfizer, which is a very big company indeed in the United States. Uh, Johnson & Johnson, also United States. Um, and BioNTech, which joined up with Pfizer to, to make um, their, their vaccine. And Moderna, which is brand new. So those are the sorts of companies. Um, Big Pharma normally includes all the drug companies as well. These are companies that very often do make drugs as well as vaccines. But the point is that they are they tend to be international companies and um, based, as we said, you know, in, in the, the wealthiest countries. Can we just delve back a little into the background of how these vaccines were brought to market and what was the balance between the role that these big companies played and the work of the scientists at the universities who were um, doing such amazing work to uh, bring the, the, the vaccines into being so quickly? Yes, the these vaccines uh, could not have um, seen the light of day without some very, very brilliant scientists who usually are uh, at universities or affiliated to universities doing all the um, the inventive work. So to, to talk about AstraZeneca, for instance, that was a small group of scientists at Oxford University who worked very hard. They were actually already working on vaccines for some diseases um, that are prevalent in low-income countries. You know, they were working on um, diseases for malaria, for instance, and, uh, and also Ebola. So um, Sarah Gilbert repurposed the, um, the, the drug, the vaccines that they were um, working on at the time, or the technology, that is to say, that they were working on, in order to produce a vaccine against the coronavirus. Uh, at the same time, in 
Germany, you had BioNTech, which is a very little company led by a couple of um, professors who are husband and wife, in fact. And they came up with um, also a similar design of vaccine. And it's a technology called mRNA, which is um, quite novel, in fact. And Moderna was doing the same thing in the United States. And again, it was individuals. In each case, in each case uh, what they had to do was to get some sort of um, backing. Uh, and, and a lot of finance is needed in order to trial these vaccines. So um, in the case of AstraZeneca, the, you know, Oxford University did a deal with AstraZeneca, which is a very big drug company. Um, uh, Moderna was actually a startup company, which got a lot of funding in the United States. And uh, so did Pfizer. Uh, while BioNTech actually did get some grants from the German government. So you need to have a lot of money, you need to have inventive scientists to begin with, then a lot of money, and you have to do massive trials, which are going to cost a huge amount. Again, before we come on to the, the, the heart of what you were writing about, can we just go back to the AIDS crisis in South Africa 20 years ago? Um, and there... This was this was a, a a a similar global health crisis that that threatened to overwhelm the world, um, and so-called big pharma at that point behaved slightly differently from how they're behaving in terms of their treatment of their patents. Can you just talk about that a bit? Yes. So back in two thousand and one, there was a what amounted to what became a major scandal. Um, and this was in South Africa. Uh, and it sort of was under the radar to begin with. Uh, you had the AIDS epidemic taking off in Africa. And a lot of people hadn't realised how bad that was going to be and how many people were going to have to die in Africa because there were no drugs. Um, now, what, was ha what happened there was that there were drugs and they were very, very expensive drugs. Um, in, in the United States, but there hadn't yet been any sort of a campaign to give those to people in Africa. But in 2001, um, actually, the crisis was precipitated by a battle for um, other sorts of drugs. It wasn't to do with AIDS drugs, in fact, but South Africa was finding its medicines bill was very high. And Nelson Mandela's government attempted to buy drugs that were cheaper in other countries. Um, and that, of course, wasn't allowed because the pharmaceutical companies had um, IP, intellectual property, patents on various medicines. So they were able to dictate the prices. Uh, and this is under the international you know, World Trade Organization type of agreements. Um, so the South African government tried to change its law in order to allow themselves to buy cheaper drugs elsewhere. This wouldn't have been AIDS drugs, in fact, as it happened. Um, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that they were um, far too expensive for the government to buy anywhere in the world because there weren't any generic versions at that time. Anyway, they, uh, the pharmaceutical companies in, who, that were selling drugs in South Africa, about 37 of them, um, got together and brought a legal action in the court in Pretoria against the South African government to try to block them from buying cheaper drugs from elsewhere. Uh, it wasn't about AIDS drugs, and yet this became um, a huge, um, a huge show, a huge thing, because there was a general recognition around the world that actually people were dying in South Africa from diseases, 
and they didn't have to die at all um, they, if they'd had the right medicines. So if you like, it sort of got extrapolated to AIDS drugs, even though actually that wasn't at issue. Um, and the, the scandal was such, the furore was such around the world that eventually the pharmaceutical companies threw in the towel, but it caused them huge damage and they really didn't recover from it, it has to be said. Um, um, and latterly, the, the, the sort of pressure they'd been under there and the, the sort of bad name they'd got for themselves for seeking profits above people's lives, as the campaigners put it, um, led really to the development of generic drugs. Um, the, uh, uh, one of the companies in India actually um, offered to produce really cheap AIDS drugs. So really, it was that scandal that brought about the very low prices of AIDS drugs that ensued, um, that were brought, bought for low-income countries really by, um, Philip, uh, well, uh, really by development can, efforts. Can you, can, you, can you give us some idea of the differential between the cost that the in Indian manufacturers could produce these drugs for per patient, as opposed to the price that was being charged in the West? Yes, absolutely. So a cocktail of AIDS drugs, as we used to call it, because three drugs were necessary um, or in one pill eventually uh, in the United States cost $10,000 a year per person. And um, when the, the battle really was at its height in the early 2000s, along came uh, Yusuf Hamid, who was the CEO of, of CIPLA, the generic drug, drug company in India, and offered to do it for a thousand. So that was a massive price cut, of course. And again, it wouldn't have been possible for the lowest income countries probably to buy it, even at that price. But they could do it with the backing of development aid, which is what happened in the end. So that's a, a really uh, useful background to think about the current pandemic, um, which in many ways, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it, it seems uh, even more frightening than the AIDS and, uh, uh, epidemic at the time. Yes, uh, in, in many ways it is because, if only because COVID is such an insidious disease, you know, you, you can inhale it. <laughs> you can, um, it's such a, a difficult thing to avoid. And that's why vaccines are so critical. And we've never had actually a vaccine for against HIV. Um, it's, it's been it's proved too difficult for anybody to produce. Um, so that's why we've had to treat it rather than prevent it. Um, but the the numbers of people who've died of HIV, of course, have been horrendous, um, and particularly in the low income countries where um, people have have had a lot of you know, people have had difficulty protecting themselves against it. Um, but um, this, I mean, it's it's very difficult to compare coronavirus to AIDS, um, but certainly they're equally frightening. Should we put it like that? Now, the argument that that the pharmaceutical companies make is uh, it costs us tens of millions, hundreds of millions to bring a drug to market, and all that research and uh, know-how has to be uh, protected by patents. Do you have sympathy for that argument in relation to the predicament we're currently in? Well, to a degree, um, you, you can see the logic of their argument, let's put it like that. But then there's another thing that we have to remember, which is that they haven't paid for all the R&D at all. They have had a lot of funding 
um, from, um, from the public sector. And that goes for an awful lot of drugs, actually, as well as these vaccines. So in the case of Pfizer and um, Moderna, for instance, between them, they have actually had $8 billion in funding to help them develop these vaccines from the United States government. Eight billion. Eight billion. Yeah, yeah. wow. They are making masses, mass, massive profits out of it. Um, the People's Vaccine Alliance, which is a group of um, a large group of um, of organisations, um, voluntary organisations and charities, which includes Oxfam, for instance, uh, they calculate that those two companies, Pfizer BioNTech and Moderna, are actually making sixty-five thousand dollars a minute. <laughs> from a minute. This. Yes, those Good two God. companies combined, and that's one heck of a lot of money. Um, so when you have the scope for those sorts of enormous profits, and actually it has been jolly clever scientists in academia somewhere who've done a lot of the initial very clever work. And you had a lot of funding from governments like the US government. You start to wonder, actually, about the, the basis for the, the argument that actually we need it to be able to do lots of R&D. I'm trying to I'm trying to extrapolate $65,000 a minute. What, what does that turn into into a yearly profit? Well, the expected profit for those two companies last year, this is the figure that that 65,000 is based on, is $34 billion. $34 billion. That was, wow. that was for last, that's last year's profits. We don't know yet whether they have actually made that much money because we're only just into the new year. However, it's a lot of money. A lot of money. So, I mean, I don't begrudge, and I'm sure nobody would, um, very inventive, very hardworking people from from making profits. That's not the point. The The thing here is that it is being seen in some quarters as an impediment. You know, the the fact that, that they are maintaining their monopoly and in order to make huge profits, which is what they are set up to do, um, means that these vaccines are not getting to the uh, the lowest income people in the world. How much of it is a capacity issue? I mean, suppose we made, waved our magic wand and they, they gave up their patents and uh, and said, OK, any, anybody can manufacture this. And from, from what I understand from your article, producing an mRNA uh, vaccine is a bit more complex than, the, than what Sipler were doing 20 years ago. Yes, it is. And vaccines actually are more complicated than drugs. So we should say that to begin with. So Cipla was producing drugs again, not a vaccine. Um, and they were well used to doing it. They have been making um, drugs for a very long time. So that's a far simpler process. Um, and really, they just needed the recipe and then they could go ahead. Um, slight complexity because they were combining three drugs in one, as we said, for the um, HIV cocktail. But here with the vaccines, yes, it's difficult uh, to make vaccines. You, um, We've seen some of the batches go very wrong. There were all sorts of um, troubles early on in the process of vaccine manufacturers, people may remember, certainly with the AstraZeneca ones. And so it's not an easy process, but vaccines are made by um, a lot of uh, different companies around the world. And even the mRNA vaccines are being manufactured by um, people in Thailand and I believe in India as well. They're, 
there are slightly different rules in some of these countries. This was the reason why India was able to to get around the um, the patent with the AIDS drugs to begin with, um, and they were able to make the vaccines um, for themselves. So, uh, sorry, the drugs for themselves at that time. So, so there are. What I'm trying to say is that there are some companies in low-income countries that could make these vaccines, but others would need a great deal of help. Now, that's already forthcoming in some circumstances. If we look at AstraZeneca again, they have actually licensed the technology for their vaccine to a handful, actually it's more than that, it's, it's maybe a dozen, perhaps as many as 20 different companies, factories around the world. And that includes South America, um, the, the, the Far East, all sorts of places. So they have found out the companies that could do it and they've licensed them to produce their vaccine and they've told them how. And that's the, the key thing, actually. These companies need to be given the recipe and skilled up, essentially. They have to be taught how to make it. That's very possible. And it's just that it's not happening at the moment that it allows people to say, no, no, this is going to be far too difficult. But we've heard that before, with certainly with the AIDS drugs. So it could be done if there was the will, which then brings us on to the cost. Um, so um, to, 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 to vaccinate the entire world. Um, do, you, do you have a figure in your head for what that would cost at the rate that, that these drugs companies are currently charging? No, I don't. I'm afraid I probably ought to do that. Those <laughs> but it would that be maths. trillions. But, um, it's it's got to be huge, hasn't it? Yeah. And the other thing we're talking about is, um, you know, there's there are a lot of countries that um, I was just looking at a, an excellent tracker actually map that's produced by the New York Times, and they show that in some countries, I think Congo or something, they've only got one percent or so, maybe fewer than that, um, of people who even have one vaccine, have, have had one vaccine. So it's hugely variable around the world. Um, so in some countries, you've got very few who've even had one vaccine. Some, quite a lot of countries, few who've had two vaccines, which counts as fully vaccinated. And then there are the booster doses, of course. You know, some of us have now had three. Um, and uh, there is even talk about a fourth. So you wonder if all the vaccine supply now is going to be channeled into countries like ours where people will soon be being offered a, a fourth vaccine that is actually on the cards. So all the time that's happening, one wonders if people are going to get past first base in somewhere like Congo. So uh, explain to us why we should care, um, i.e. The, the mantra of no one's safe till everyone's safe. Um, uh, explain why it's in our own self-interest that we should uh, make sure the rest of the world is vaccinated as well as our own citizens. <laughs> Go on then. So Omicron shows us that we're not safe behind our own borders. Um, Omicron was spotted in South Africa, I have to say largely because they're very good at surveillance in South Africa. But uh, we were, are going to have new variants popping up all over the world. There may be some already that we don't know about in countries in Africa, for instance, um, where surveillance is not so good because they haven't been able to invest in it in the way that some countries have. So as these new variants arise, 
what we saw with Omicron was it is is a different is different from Delta because it spreads incredibly fast. And huge numbers of us, and I include myself just before Christmas, have now had Omicron where we didn't get Delta. That's been okay because, you know, as I say, a lot of us are triple jabbed now, so it's a mild bout of illness. There may yet come a variant that spreads equally well, maybe doesn't spread quite so well, but it's different from the ones we've had before and causes more severe illness. That is still a possibility. And as long as you have countries where they don't have a great deal of vaccination, in those countries, the virus comes along and it can mutate in people's bodies. So the process of mutation, we think, happens very often when people's immune systems are not very, not working very well, but the virus hangs around for quite a long time. So somebody who's chronically ill, Ill for quite a long time with, with, a, with um, coronavirus might possibly uh, then develop a variant you know, that's one of the options anyway, one of the things that might happen. That can happen without us knowing in another country that's not well vaccinated and it simply comes back here because in spite of what um, a lot of people would like to think, we are in fact a global community you know, and anything that happens in one country is likely to end up in another. But nevertheless, there's a political calculation, isn't there, between if you're if you were prime minister tomorrow and you had to make the judgments between administering boosters to British citizens and 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 solving the problems for our own economy and avoiding lockdowns and so on and so forth. Isn't the reality that the, the, the domestic political agenda is, is always going to win over? That that's the problem we're facing. Indeed. And and that's and we have the evidence for it, don't we? This is exactly the situation we're in, that each country has um defended its own and I suppose that's that is inevitable, and maybe that's why we have to go back to global agreements to, um, in some way, overcome those national interests. Uh, yes, you're right. I think that the general population doesn't really accept the need um, for global vaccination. Um, they are thinking, "Well, I'm all right, Jack. You know, I've had my, I've had my booster shot. Um, I will be fine, and and so will all my family." And also we've had this evidence from Omicron that it can be milder, although, you know, we are still worried about people ending up in hospital. And um, but but um, this is where you do need for politicians actually to, um, to to stand tall, to do rather better than they've been doing. So we don't want Boris Johnson to say it's OK. You know, we're going to get the British people triple vaccinated, then perhaps quadruple vaccinated. Um is also actually a bit of a foolish argument in the end, isn't it? Because um, the the longer that the coronavirus is around and develops more variants and these come back to bite us, the more vaccines we're going to have to buy. And also it's a stop on global trade and on travel and all, all sorts of things. But um, you're right, you know, the, we do need for politicians in individual countries to uh, to think to think broadly and to think beyond their own borders. So we, we have some voices like former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who's been very vocal on this. Can you tell us a bit about the role of the current government um, in terms of this issue of, of patent waiver? Are they are they encouraging uh, international patent waivers or are they blocking them? 
I'm afraid that the UK is very much against it. Um, and that is historic, actually. This country has never been in favour of um, in any way uh, diluting the international um, property regulations or rules, rather. So, no, the UK government's not in favour of patent waivers. Um, and we do have, um, uh, you know, big pharmaceutical companies that are based at least partly in the UK, and that undoubtedly plays a part. Um, so you're, you're seeing a government that's supporting its own uh, homegrown industry, if you like. So we've got GlaxoSmithKline um, that um, is British, although they're headquartered in the United States, and uh, also um, AstraZeneca sort of, you know, it's actually Swiss, but it's sort of partly, uh, certainly does have um, uh, a foothold in, in Britain as well. And, and it's the British vaccine. So, you know, they won't be keen at all to um, to do anything that, that those companies wouldn't like. Um, Germany also is against um, the patent waiver. Um, uh, so that's also not surprising. And so is Switzerland. Um, and Switzerland is the home to Novartis and um, other companies as well. So, yes, Europe isn't very keen on patent waivers. The big, big surprise was that back in May, and this was at the time that South Africa and India proposed the patent waiver at the World Trade Organization, America actually said that it would support it. Uh, this is Joe Biden's government. And although they haven't specified exactly um, the detail of, of what they'd be in favor of, they have said that they they would support a patent waiver of some sort. Um, now, the reason that's surprising is because the biggest, the most powerful, the wealthiest pharmaceutical companies in the world are all in the United States. So um, you know, I think uh, most of the campaigners fell off their chairs when they heard that. Um, but, but even so, even with the United States you know, support and the support of the World Health Organization um, and the support of um, quite a number of countries, actually, and, and obviously the, the low and middle income countries, uh, this hasn't got through. It's the World Trade Organization that would have to decide um, on uh, changing the rules, basically, so that uh, the, the patents could be put aside to allow companies to make them. So given the national interests and the, the lack of political will with some of the most powerful governments uh, in the West, what's the likelihood of this of anything changing? I mean, how do you get to that moment of 20 years ago when the when the outrage is such that the, the, the companies feel they have to do something? Uh, well, that's maybe what we need, a bit of outrage. <laughs> Perhaps that's the only thing that will do it. Um, and I don't think we're going to have outrage from those countries that have um, you know, got high vaccine coverage, actually. Um, so it's... Yeah, it's um, I don't know. It's, it's very finely balanced um, and, and possibly teetering on the wrong side, I fear. There was a big, um, going to be a big WTO meeting um, at the end of last year, and that didn't happen. It's postponed because of COVID. Uh, there are still negotiations going on, apparently, but all the mood music that you hear is, is a little bit pessimistic. Um, but I think even if they don't get as far as a patent waiver, you know, something has to happen, surely, um, to make it possible for 
um, vaccines actually to be manufactured in low-income countries or middle-income countries at the very least, you know, in large quantities, so that at the same time that you supply rich countries like ours, you can also supply the whole of Africa, for instance, where the rates are so low, rates of, of um, vaccination are so low. You actually need to have supply worldwide, not supply in, in small corners of the world where you know, the lucky people live. We, we sometimes read about sell-by dates and vaccines going to waste. Uh, how, how big a problem is that and why is that happening? It's happening because, um, well, this, this goes back actually to the, the, uh, the, the issue of donation of vaccines. So what the pharmaceutical industry has said um, is that there isn't a problem actually of producing, manufacturing vaccines. It's just that uh, we need more donation from the rich countries. Um, so the idea is that countries like the UK and the US should um, hand over the vaccines they can't use um, uh, to, to the low-income countries. The trouble is that if you hand them over too late, there's very little shelf life left. And if you've only got, say, six weeks of um, before the expiry date on vaccines, that's incredibly difficult for countries, particularly low-income countries, to do anything about because you know, they've got to, these vaccines have got to arrive, they've got to, they're in warehouses, they've got to be shipped out to where they need to be. Um, you need to have large numbers of vaccinators deployed um, and you're not going to get the sort of situation that we've got in the UK where you've got so many centres and so many vaccinators who can, who can actually give people jabs. Um, so you're putting low-income countries under a lot of stress um, if you if you give them um, vaccines that are near their sell by date, frankly, so that that's not a helpful thing to do. But it is proposed as one of the solutions to this problem, and and maybe it's something that ought to be happening, um, but preferably a lot faster in order to help to alleviate the situation. You you've had a long career as a health journalist. What does the politics of vaccination show about wider global health inequalities? Um, I think, interestingly, vaccination is, is one of the, um, the best things that's happened in global health. Um, and if you think about some of the diseases that we've come close to eradicating, like polio, obviously, uh, there are only a couple of countries that still have polio, endemic polio. And we might be able to get rid of that if um, certainly the Gates Foundation would like to. Bill Gates has got that as a target in his uh, very much his probably his top target, actually. Um, but it has been terrific to see how how you know there have been massive measles vaccination campaigns, polio campaigns. Sometimes even wars have been um, temporarily halted. For, for vaccinations to take place, you know. But these are vaccines that we've had for years and years and years. Um, and actually, it's, it's probably, um, we, we probably should have done better with those than, the, the, than we have. But we have managed to make some of those, those sort of um, childhood diseases retreat. <clears throat> um, otherwise, the new vaccines, we always come up against the same problem as we do with the the new drugs um, you know cancer drugs are not available in the low-income countries and actually they're prohibitively expensive in for some people in America as well so you've got this cost issue always and that's because the pharmaceutical companies producing 
new drugs, new vaccines um, are in it to make money, which is fine, you know, so be it. But there has to be a way to ensure that um, either they can cut the costs in some ways for those people with low incomes or um, allow other people to make cheaper versions, because otherwise, you know, you get people who would have lived if they'd lived in a different country, but instead of that, they die of something really unpleasant. Sarah, thank you so much. Um, your, your wonderful piece is called Share and Share Alike. It's in the current issue of Prospect, which is on sale now. Um, uh, and that's all from us. And thank you for joining us today and talking about your piece. Uh, and thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.